You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we are pleased to welcome environmentalist and historian Peter Staudenmeyer to talk about eco-fascism and other right-wing trends in environmental thought. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. And if you find yourself appreciating the podcast, please do not forget to subscribe, to like, to comment, and to write to us. We very much appreciate it. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Peter Staudenmeyer about eco-fascism. But before we do that, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take just a few moments to talk about some current events. And before we jump into our current events section, we should remind you that Our next episode will be our 100th episode of Radio Free Humanity. And to celebrate this milestone, we're going to be doing a live show on Sunday, September 10th from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. If you would like to submit a comment or question for us to discuss on that live show, you can send that comment to mhi at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. Today is August 14th. For this current events segment, we are going to be talking about a piece by conservative columnist David Brooks from August 2nd, New York Times. It's called, What If We Are the Bad Guys Here? And there were two responses criticizing Brooks's piece, one by Zach Beecham in Vox called, I regret to report the economic anxiety theory of Trumpism is back. And another response by Christina Catarucci in Slate called, Enough with the False Narrative About Trump's Rise. Perhaps regular listeners will be able to intuit where we're going to go with this criticism. So, Andrew, the David Brooks piece, I guess we should summarize his points here first, right? Uh, sure. Brooks is asking the question on everyone's mind, why are Trumpites so Trumpy? And his response is, perhaps it's not because they're racist, authoritarian, proto-fascists. Maybe it's actually because they are resentful of economic elites and they're suffering from economic anxiety. And then he goes on a long rant about meritocracy and the way that the education system and other social practices allow wealthy people to stay wealthy and poor people to stay poor. And meritocracy is an ideology to use to justify this exclusion. I read Zach Beecham's piece and I go, this guy has nailed it. I think he got it exactly right. Just to say that he quotes Mark Hetherington, he identifies him as a political scientist, but he treats him like, oh, he's a guy with an opinion who happens to be a political scientist, not one of many, many people who've researched this question and is speaking, not an opinion, not telling a story, which is like the word that David Brooks strews all over his thing. Yeah, here's one story, here's another story. Hetherington is 
summarizing the results of his own research and a lot of people's research, including mine. So that's what struck me immediately is Christina Caterucci picked up on this. He does, you know, mention like what political scientists say, what the social science researchers say, but he just dismisses it. Oh, well, that's a story, but uh, here's another story I'll tell you. Yeah, and I think that what's striking is like why Brooks takes this form of argumentation. His thesis is a fiction that di- different people have an interest in maintaining. Their ability to maintain that fiction has become really eroded by all the research into the Trump base and all of like just the blatant reality of the way the Trump base behaves, the messaging that works on them, what they say with their own words every day. So in order to maintain this fiction, you can't really appeal to research and you can't appeal to a lot of facts. You have to just find a certain narrative with with certain key plot points that you know that certain people in your base want to hear. And then they'll just sort of keep nodding their heads because they 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 like these plot points when they hear them. Yeah. He's an anti-Trump conservative Republican, but he's saying, oh, well, we screwed these people over. We, the meritocratic elites, we don't have to agree with them. Trump should be in prison, but like, you know, we got to like understand them. And it's like, this has been going on for seven years now, visiting the, the diners in Iowa and asking people, and he, he's not a politician, and he's all, all, the, all, the, all the rest of it. What people don't want to come out and say is, we adhere to great replacement thinking. These elites are doing the bidding of the, the immigrants, the minorities, the this and the that. The, the funny thing is, Brooks says, oh, the elites are telling themselves a comforting story in which they are the good guys. And... Yeah, okay, let's accept that as as correct. What Beecham actually does, though, is he says, look, what Brooks is doing and all of these other people with the economic distress, economic anxiety, false line about Trumpism, they are also telling themselves a a comforting story. Why do we keep getting this story again and again and again when it has no reality underlying it? In terms of cause and effect, you can point to this, you can point to that, you can point to unequal this, unequal that. The question is, what is the cause or what are the causes of the Trumpite base being for Trump and not moving from Trump no matter what? Causation is different from correlation. Correlation is not proof of causation. So these people are resentful. They're not as privileged as as the elites, let's say. But is that the cause of their adherence to Trump? And he's got nothing. He's, he's got Brooks has got nothing to link the putative cause with the with with the effect. He's, he's just he's just got a story. He's making it up, and he's saying, try on this story for size instead of the other story. Well, the difference is the other story is backed up by a mountain of research that's been replicated again and again and again. So what? My question is always, why does this false narrative keep reappearing? Why doesn't it go by the wayside? What is in people's interest, in other words, that is causing them to adhere to this economic distress, economic anxiety bullshit about why the Trump base loves Trump? And I think I, f- I figured some something of it out and a, a little bit with the help of uh, Zach Beecher. This is the, at the end where he says, the reality is that our deep political divide is rooted first and foremost in profound and largely irreconcilable views of who America is for and what its social hierarchy should look like. But that may be unpleasant for Brooks and all of us to contemplate. 
Is that the part you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was I, I was struck by that same thing because I had that same question, like, why are we still hearing this? We know why it's been reduced to just an assertion and and like playing to the certain types of people's prejudices, or but we don't know like why people want to hear it. Right, and it's not just a problem with the conservatives, the never Trump Republicans. The, the Brooks line is essentially the line that was peddled by Jacobin, et cetera, et cetera, on the left. So there's an appeal to a lot of people, and there's a distaste for saying deplorables are deplorable, they are irredeemable, etc. And what what is that? Why does this make people uncomfortable to face the reality that there are people who think totally different, whose values and priorities and idea of what America should be, those are totally different. Why, why do they feel so uncomfortable? Well, I can take a guess. For people on the left, I would think it's because there's a certain instinct amongst a lot of people on the left that common people, the masses of people, instinctively break left. That when masses of ordinary people get together to advocate for things that they see in their own self-interest, that those things will be inherently progressive left things. So it's very hard for the left to imagine the phenomenon of a reactionary mass movement and not to think that that reaction is somehow like some kind of false consciousness or something. It's hard for the left to understand that. For someone like David Brooks, I think it's probably coming from a different place. I think people like him are just left behind by modern conservatism. They don't know how to relate to it. And so they're looking for some way of sympathizing with or relating to this deeply reactionary base. Right. I, I think a lot of never-Trump people have been dealing with that for years, and a lot of people have come to grips with it. They have no party to speak of. You know, Some of them become Democrats, but they probably came as a shock, a real shock to a lot of people, but they, they have no mass follow. They seem to, because uh, the, the racist dog whistles always accompany the laissez-faire economic conservatism or the, the neocon saber-rattling, but you strip away the neocon saber-rattling and the economic conservatism, as Trump's done, you, what you get is is the plain racism, and a lot of them, to their credit, aren't going to go there, but then they've got nowhere to go. I think you're right that the, the idea of people's material interests and false consciousness pervades a lot of the left. I don't know that that's something that, that Brooks s suffers from, but I think in, in, in both cases, people want to believe that everybody else thinks like them fundamentally and is just misguided, misinformed, whatever, and they just need to be educated, they need to be informed, and everything will be okay if we're able to get the, the, the truth out there, improve the economic conditions a little bit, and we're all really on the same side. Basically, some amelioration of conditions and some persuasion can fix all of the social problems. We are not in a fight to the death. I don't think that like the Jacobin people, I don't think that the people like Brooks can comfortably, and that, that's why the, the uncomfortable thing comes in, they cannot comfortably fit themselves into a situation like this where there is an implacable foe. And the implacable foe has, you know, a target on your back. But that is, I think, the reality in which we live in, and they don't have a kind of politics that can come to grips with it. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation with Peter Staudenmeyer. 
We are recording this segment on July 26th of 2023, and we are pleased to welcome Peter Staudenmeyer. We're going to be talking about right-wing thought in the environmental movement, eco-fascism, and other right-wing trends in the environmental movement, and topic that Peter is quite an expert in. Uh, Peter Staudenmeyer is a associate professor at Marquette University. He has written extensively on environmental thought in Nazi Germany, fascist thought, and the history of, of racial thought and environmental history. He wrote a book, uh, you say 1995, Ecofascism Revealed with Janet Beale. Is that right? 1995? That's when it first came out. That's correct. Much later, there was uh, Ecofascism Revisited, which was like an updated version of the book. And the book we're going to be discussing today is a collection of essays from 2021 called Ecology Contested. So, Peter Stoudemire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, welcome, Peter. Thank you. I, th- I thought the essays in your book were really interesting. It's not a topic I know a lot about. We've discussed in the podcast uh, right-wing thought often and, and fascism and contemporary politics. And we talk sometimes about environmentalism, but this issue of right-wing thought and its overlaps or its creep into environmental thought is not something we've ever talked about. So I'm excited to explore this topic. I think a lot of people right, associate environmentalism with left-wing politics, but how common are far-right ideas in the environmental movement and how influential are they? Sure. Well, there, before I even answer that question, I think it's worth looking for a second at why we so often associate environmentalism with the left. If you, if you don't mind, that's that's really worth thinking about because it's a it's a really appealing notion, certainly for people like me, for those of us who are both on the left and who care deeply about the environment, which is a pretty good description of myself and I'm going to guess of a lot of your listeners. For people like us, the notion that there is some sort of natural affinity, or at least a long-standing affinity between environmental politics and the left, it's a really seductive idea. So we want to both understand the appeal of that notion, but also be able to see why and how that notion might be mistaken. And that's what makes this topic so interesting and so challenging. It's it's really easy to misunderstand the research that I do. Ever since the very first time I published anything about this, which is almost 30 years ago now, when Janet and I first put out that the first edition of that book back in 1995, she and I had both been writing on the topic for a couple of years before that. But when that book first came out, even though we wrote it very explicitly as leftists, we published it with an anarchist publisher. We said right up front, we're writing this for radical environmentalists. We we couldn't have made it more clear. Despite all of that, a number of the initial positive responses came from people on the right who thought that it was a condemnation of environmentalism who thought that we were sort of exposing the environmental movement and its Nazi roots. And that kind of misunderstanding has persisted to this day, 30 years later now. And you mentioned that you also had a review published online where the person identified you as the reviewer (laughs) identified you as like right wingers. I forgot about that. And that guy, for what it's worth, is a professional historian. I am not going to mention any names. I'm sworn to secrecy on who that person (laughs) is. But that's a person who really, who professionally ought to know better and who just didn't, who, who was not able to sort of figure out 
What are the politics here? And I think that tells us something. Really smart people, people who are not just dumb, have failed to figure out the tricky combinations going on here. And that's important. So, Brendan, when you when you started out by saying, we haven't talked a lot about this before, that makes sense because it's it's simply not the most common way to approach this topic. In fact, back then, three decades ago, so few people even had the faintest idea what we were talking about. Janet and I were two of very few people anywhere on the planet who took the topic seriously at all. There were a few people in Germany, most of whom we we knew, that we learned a lot of our of our work from initially, but that was about it. Now, I would say especially after tragically after the 2019 attacks, first in Christchurch and then in El Paso, and then maybe after the attack in Buffalo last year, that is what has maybe brought this notion to a broader public consciousness. When when you have crazed right-wingers out there who use a term like ecofascism to describe themselves, who call themselves ecofascists, and then go put their ideas into practice and turn it into terrorist acts, turning into acts of mass murder, that's the kind of thing that I think finally makes people start to pay a little bit more attention. So if if I can put it this way, I would say I liked the world a lot better when the stuff that I studied was extremely obscure and no one else cared about it. And I don't like it now when I get calls from, you know, reporters from the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, who need to figure out what the hell is this thing uh, ecofascism. Can you explain it to me, Professor Stoudemeyer? So unfortunately, for reasons that I wish weren't the case, this is a topic that has gone from utter obscurity and utter marginality to something that pretty much everybody now has to pay more attention to. So I, I think there are good reasons why any of us who were born after 1950, which is most of us these days, anyone who was socialized in the post-1960s period in, in North America, in Europe, it makes sense that we would instinctively associate environmental politics with the left, because there's been about a half-century period where there has been a kind of convergence, not a perfect convergence, but a pretty consistent convergence between environmental politics and much of the left. But if you take a longer historical view, if you're willing to look at the history of environmentalism in its longer-term historical development. If you look back toward the 19th century or the first half of the 20th century, and if you look at that longer-term view, you'll see, you'll really quickly see, that the roots of modern environmentalism, what historians call modern, historians use the term modern in a weird way. For us, modern is pretty much anything after the French Revolution. So the last 200 years are still modern. If you look back at the the roots of modern environmentalism, there's simply no clear political pattern at all. For better or worse, environmentalism over that longer period has just as readily allied itself with the right as with the left. And that's important for those of us who do care about the environment and who see ourselves as on the left. That's important for us to understand. So when we see these seemingly bizarre outbreaks of violence from the far right claiming an ecological mandate, when we see that happening, those people didn't just come out of nowhere. They're actually drawing on a very lengthy tradition, a tradition going back more than a century and a half now 
now of right-wing environmental politics. And I think we have a, an obligation to understand that tradition a little bit better. And the contemporary people that call themselves eco-fascists, are they consciously drawing on the history of eco-fascist thought? Or are they just sort of responding intuitively to the moment from a right-wing perspective? That is an excellent question. Sometimes they are consciously drawing on that tradition as they understand it. They often understand it in thoroughly distorted ways. But sure, sometimes they are drawing on what they know or what they think they know about that tradition. But sometimes, especially if they are younger, sometimes they're just responding from a general radical right orientation to what they see as the urgency of the contemporary ecological crisis. And that's important. It's a reminder that there, once again, another reminder that there's nothing inherently emancipatory about that sense of urgency about the current ecological crisis. Those of us on the left tend to see it through the lens of the climate crisis, which is not the predominant lens on the right. By the way, the predominant lenses, plural lenses on the right for ecological crisis usually appear in other forms. It's not generally seen through the lens of the climate crisis, but there's a lot, there's certainly a sense of urgency around environmental issues on large stretches of the right as well. But for those actors on the right who do think they know some of that history. They'll often be aware that, for example, just to choose one example, the founding generation of the conservation movement in the United States, a lot of those folks were firmly attached to a very authoritarian set of beliefs about society as a whole. Their own politics, in other words, were clearly authoritarian, and they often had a set of strongly xenophobic social beliefs as well, whether that expressed itself as a form of anti-immigrant sentiment. Anti-immigrant views have been an accompaniment to environmentalism from the very beginning. That's not some 21st century thing. That's been there since the 19th century and then straight through the 20th century into our own time. Sometimes those early years of the conservation movement in the United States, sometimes their xenophobia expressed itself in racist views and uh contemptuous views towards indigenous societies, toward Native Americans, sometimes racist views toward African Americans or toward black and brown people more generally. There's a lot of different ways that that came to expression. And then last but hardly least, a lot of the founding members of the conservation movement in the U.S. strongly supported eugenics. So there's a lot of different ways where you can pretty clearly trace some of these connections. And a number of people on today's right who see themselves as environmentalists, as they understand environmentalism, some of them are aware of that history and they see themselves as carrying forward that tradition. And these linkages, I mean, they're not just empirical. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that the commonality from a ideological perspective is that the root of both things is a certain notion of purity of health. You know, in other words, you, you want to purify the country so you don't want these horrible, dirty immigrants coming in, eugenics, the same kind of stuff. Purity, health, good environment, 
all that seems to be wrapped up together in these people's minds, right? Absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it, Andrew. When way back in the day, when Janet Beale and I were trying to think of possible titles for this little book that we were going to put out together, one of the titles that we considered briefly was The Politics of Purity. Because that notion of purity was and is so central, especially to far-right versions, there's, there's a difference between just general right-wing versions of a politics of nature and then far-right versions of a politics of nature. And the further to the right you get, the more conspicuous that obsession with purity becomes. And it expresses itself both in an ecological context, both regarding environmental issues, but especially in racial and ethnic contexts as well. And for a lot of people on the far right, there's not that strong a distinction between the environmental dimension and the ethnic and racial dimension. They see those two things as extremely closely connected to one another. Right. And George Lakoff, you know, I got some problems with some of the things he does and says, but he's been very much focused on this issue of purity as a right-wing value, as opposed to more progressive values, when, when he talks about like different segments of the population. So that general insistence on purity and valorization of so-called purity is kind of still a big thing on, on the right. Absolutely. The reason I think it matters in specifically in environmental contexts is it lends itself to a very particular interpretation or a particular set of interpretations of ecological challenges. There's no necessary reason why a politics of purity has to show up in ecological contexts or in environmental contexts. But when it does show up, it will have a pretty powerful impact on the kinds of choices that will make sense to people, in this case, to people on the right or on the far right, and the kinds of choices that won't make sense. And that's going to matter politically. It's going to matter a lot. Are there other like themes in far-right ecology other than purity that are like central or, or common themes? Absolutely. Community is a big one. A lot of people on the right care very deeply about community. And that's one of the ways in which I think some of us on the left could work a little harder to understand what folks on the right are talking about, work a little harder than some of us do so far. Because many of us on the left quite properly look at the right as that's where the enemy is, that's where I have to focus my opposition on, we sometimes forget that from a critical point of view, you can't oppose something effectively that you don't understand at all. And if we want to understand them, well, understanding means understanding. It's going to require a at least a little bit of empathy. It's going to require a little bit of, let's try to put myself into their shoes for a minute. Now, I concede that's extremely hard to do with people on the far right. I have to do it professionally because I study Nazis and fascists, but it's really hard to do with people who aren't dead. People I study lived, you know, 100 years ago. It's really hard to do people you share the world with right now. So I recognize it's not an easy thing to ask. It's still important to do. So I think sometimes we on the left could work a little harder to make a little bit more sense of what are people on the right getting at when they talk all about community this and community that. It's a pretty key theme for them, and it comes up repeatedly 
repeatedly in their discourses of nature and their talk about environmentalism and about ecological issues. So it's not just stuff about purity, as, as crucial as that is, as central as that is, but that's one of an ensemble of themes that sort of comes up again and again on the right when they address environmental issues. How, how did you become interested in writing about th these topics, ecofascism, far-right environmental movements? The initial impetus came long before I was a real historian, long before I was a scholar. It came out of my activist involvement. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, I worked with a number of different groups here in the United States, where I live now, where I, where I was born and raised, but also in Germany. I, I spent a lot of my adult life living and working in Germany. And and I sort of was going back and forth from both of those places. In the U.S., I worked with a group for a while called the Left Green Network. In Germany, I worked with a group called the Ökologische Linke, which means the ecological left. Neither of those groups really much exists all that much anymore, but they, they both had a presence back in the day. And in both of those contexts, I would come into contact with people in the broader ecology movement, not in those groups, but in the in broader ecological contexts, especially in North America, less so in Germany. I'd bump into people over and over again who would repeat arguments or repeat themes or repeat a series of beliefs or ideas that I recognized from my back then sort of superficial acquaintance with the history of right-wing environmentalism. This is long before I studied it in a professional capacity, just from knowing a little bit about it, mostly from living in Germany and knowing a little bit about the history of the German environmental movement, so much of which had been entangled with right-wing variants in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. And that kind of alarmed me. It surprised me at first because I'd hear these arguments from people in the 1980s and 1990s in North America who knew nothing about this history at all, and they had no idea idea that they were basically repeating versions of things that sounded eerily familiar, uncannily familiar, and unsettlingly familiar to me from things that a German might have said in the 1930s. And I wanted to find out more about that. I wanted to sort of figure out what's going on here. Why, why isn't there more historical consciousness within environmental circles about the, the longer term history of some of these beliefs, some of these practices? And that's really how I stumbled onto the topic. Janet Beale and I had already been working together in the Left Green Network, but we didn't realize that we were both studying and writing on this same topic. We'd each independently written a, a different article on the same topic. And once we realized we were both working on it, that's how we ended up publishing this book together. But it really began out of a concern with the state of activism and much less a concern with any scholarly worries. I definitely was not an academic back then at all. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are 
are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. You've in some ways addressed the issue of the influence of far-right ecology ideas and, and eco-fascism. You've talked about the mass murders, and you've now talked about what we would call mainstream environmentalists using right-wing language and tropes or taking their ideas. But, you know, that might be just innocent. People lack different ways to express something they want to say, and something they want to say is good. They just don't get it right. Is there any real influence of this far-right ecological thinking on mainstream environmentalism? Does it distort the nature of the struggle for the environment in any significant ways today? There is some, but I would not overestimate that. That's, that, that's certainly not my primary concern. My main concern is with people who really are on the far-right. I am less worried about their impact on mainstream environmentalism. But that's a great question since you've raised it. Yeah, there is some. One of the main vectors for that in a North American context was a guy named John Tanton, who just passed away last year, I think. And he's not a household name, even among environmentalists, but insiders certainly knew who Tanton was. He and his wife, Mary Lou Tanton, they were key figures in the crossover between mainstream environmentalism and, if you will, mainstream anti-immigrant politics in a U.S. context. And they worked hard for decades 
to sort of bring those two moments as close together as they possibly could. And they also worked hard, John Tatton worked really hard to not let on just how far to the right his own politics actually were. He tried hard not to let on how cozy he was with people on the very, very far right, because that would have ruined his project. That would have prevented him from making the inroads with mainstream environmentalists and other people that he wanted to make. And unfortunately, in my view, given my own politics, unfortunately, he was very successful at this while he was alive. For the last three decades, four decades or so of his life, he did a very effective job at setting up a series of organizations that have very innocuous names. The Center for Immigration Studies is just one of them. The Federation for American Immigration Reform. He's very good at setting up these organizations that have boards of directors with very normal people. A couple of them have progressive members on their boards of directors and sort of mainstream standard conservative members, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have far-right figures in their public-facing work. But what they've done is gotten a lot of people in mainstream environmental movements to buy into a set of ideas about immigration, a set of arguments about immigration that actually have their origins much, much, much further to the right. Some of the best scholarship about this actually comes from feminist scholars who've done excellent work on the politics of population, the politics of reproduction, the politics of race as it impinges on immigration policy, et cetera, et cetera. This is not exactly what I do uh, in my own work, but I pay attention to that body of critical scholarship. So there are some examples in the late 20th and early 21st century where some of those ideas have trickled into mainstream environmental movements, but I, I, I would not overemphasize that aspect of it. But your book, The Ecology Contested, discusses a lot of themes, sort of commonplace notions or frames of reference that can be found in right-wing environmentalism, but they also, some of these ideas sound like familiar tropes or ways of thinking that are much broader than just right-wing extremists. I'm thinking of like, in your discussion of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, you talk about sort of this very abstracted notion of technology, like impinging on this innate human freedom, or in your discussion of vegetarianism and, and animal rights, you talk about the conception and the relation of humans to animals, applying like universal ethics to animals that doesn't really make sense. And I assume these kind of critiques, because you're concerned about certain ideas that are in the environmental movement, the broader movement, not just what the far-right, you know, violent extremists are doing. Sure. That's an excellent question, Brendan. The point I was trying to make in those essays in the book, the book is a collection of disparate essays, but in, in those essays in the book, the point I was trying to make was that there's a series of arguments at stake in environmental politics that don't belong to any specific place on the political spectrum. They're not right-wing ideas. They're not left-wing ideas. They're not centrist ideas, because there are no centrist ideas. They're not anybody's ideas. They're just up for grabs. And they're really important ideas. They're, they're ideas that have substance to them, and they're ideas that are legitimate areas for debate and for disagreement. The, the ones about animal rights, for example, 
those are really important. You you know, because you've read my essay, I have very strong views on that topic. And I have been arguing about them for many, many years now. And I have very few people who agree with me. Most of my friends firmly disagree with most of my, you know, most of the people I know in my life firmly disagree with me on that. And that's great. To my mind, those are the kinds of questions we should be debating. They are not the kinds of questions where we ought to have some sort of consensus or something like that. on. So I don't see those personally, in my view, I don't see those as belonging to the right. I see them more as possible ways where far-right actors might be able to find a foothold in broader ecological discourse if we're not careful, or where they might be able to make inroads into environmental spaces if we aren't paying attention to the specifically right-wing variants of that kind of thinking. Because the right-wing variants of those kinds of thinking they have a history, they have a past, they have a specific delineation that we can learn about, that we can inform ourselves about, that we can find out more about, and then we can have a better critical awareness of where wherever any of us stands individually on those philosophical questions, we can learn more about what's the scary version of that that I need to be aware of and that I can be better able to critique if and when I encounter it in the real world. Let's say back to the Ted Kaczynski example. You talk about Ted Kaczynski having this concept of like sort of a abstract innate state of freedom that humans existed in or should be existing in and that technology in this very abstract form is like oppressing people and taking away their freedom. And you have a lot of critique of of this concept. Would you say that there is a way the left should understand that sort of simple duality that if people on the left could understand that, that would allow them to distinguish themselves from reactionary ways of understanding the relationship of humans to technology? Before Peter answers that, I'm a bit concerned about our audience, that younger people in particular might not know the name Ted Kaczynski and, you know, might not know he wrote a manifesto where, you know, these ideas are articulated and so forth. Can one of you give a brief bio of who he was? Sure. Although in my experience, younger folks these days know all about him. His name is all over the place. I find that people who are between like my age and my nieces and nephews who are all finishing high school right now, They know a lot about, or they think they know a lot about Kaczynski. They certainly know his name. They know he's the guy who wrote the Unabomber Manifesto. Some of them have started reading the manifesto, which might be encouraging or scary, depending on your point of view. I find that he's actually become this now highly popular, highly memed figure. He's a big deal these days. I'm not sure why exactly. Apparently there was some Netflix special a couple of years ago, but he's become a, strangely in the last few years before his recent death, he's become this really big deal guy. So I don't mind saying a little bit more about him, but aside from the fact that he was the uh, author of the Unibobber Manifesto, classic critique of technology, and then got caught by the FBI soon after the Unabomber Manifesto was published in two famous newspapers, spent the rest of his life in prison, just died a few months ago. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? That's who this uh, Kaczynski guy is. He is now, in addition to being famous on TikTok and Instagram and other things, Kaczynski is becoming increasingly beloved among self-described eco-fascists. 
today. The kinds of eco-fascists, and this may sound like a, a, a bizarre paradox from a Kaczynski point of view, but the kinds of eco-fascists who make copious use of TikTok and Instagram and who are great at sending out memes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But those folks freaking love Kaczynski. They call him Uncle Ted. They have a whole pine tree thing going on in their Twitter feeds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They are so into Kaczynski. Now, to be to be very, very clear, I, I want this to come through clearly. That is not necessarily Kaczynski's own fault. When you put a body of ideas out into the world and some other group comes along quarter of a century later and takes that body of ideas and runs with it, those are two distinct things. So I want to be clear. I am not, therefore, necessarily saying that Kaczynski himself was an eco-fascist. That's an interesting question that we could debate. My own answer to that would be complicated, would take a long time to explain. The simple version would be no, but, but that's a different thing. But I am saying he is a huge figure for today's younger generation of actual eco-fascists, people who call themselves eco-fascists, not just the ones I'm describing as eco-fascists. So anyway, Kaczynski, the, the way you phrase that question, Brendan, is terrific. To my mind, a left response to that sort of what I would call that simplistic duality, the here's freedom and here's technological slavery, take your choice. To my mind, a left response has to begin by questioning those premises, by putting the duality itself into question, by critiquing the whole way that Kaczynski framed his argument from the beginning. In a lot of ways, Kaczynski himself was kind of a tragic figure. At least that's how I see him. I'm not trying to be overly sympathetic to the guy, but if you think about it, it's like his own life was a microcosm of those ideas, those starkly juxtaposed ideas that he presented in his manifesto. And by the way, for those of your, of your listeners who don't know that much more about him, he didn't stop with the Unabomber manifesto. Once they stuck him in prison for the rest of his life, he kept writing and kept publishing. There's reams and reams of material out there under his name. He had friendly contacts in the outside world who were happy to publish his books. So there's a lot of other stuff out there about technological slavery by Ted Kaczynski, who continued developing his ideas. Although by my reading, his ideas didn't change all that substantively after the Unabomber Manifesto. The way he lived his own life up until his capture and imprisonment, it kind of expressed that weird that you either live in absolute freedom, which for him meant a tiny cabin in the woods in Montana without any social context to speak of, or you are enslaved by technology. And a left response, to my mind, to that has to say, well, what happens to human society under that scenario? It's a highly individualistic approach to making sense of what's actually wrong with modern technology. It doesn't really get at the root of the problem. It's a big part of what I tried to say in that essay. Kaczynski presents an argument that I think deserves critical attention and not just derision. It doesn't deserve to be dismissed. It deserves to be confronted. It deserves to be engaged. It deserves people to think it through and say, 
here's what's wrong with the arguments that he put forward. I think we need more of that coming from left thinkers, from emancipatory thinkers, because he wasn't crazy to say there's something deeply screwed up with modern forms of technology. There is something deeply screwed up with modern forms of technology. The diagnosis that Kaczynski gave of that, it seems to me, was superficial and simplistic, but he wasn't wrong to point out a number of those problems. In your discussion of Kaczynski, you say, quote, surmounting the current ecological crisis will mean more than simply changing or eliminating technical equipment. It will mean fundamentally restructuring all of society from the ground up, close quote. What kind of restructuring do you have in mind? The kinds of social changes that I foresee are extremely profound. My own political background is in the anarchist movement. So I'm the kind of person who thinks that we are going to eventually, probably sooner rather than later, given the severity of the contemporary ecological crisis, but we are eventually going to have to not just dismantle capitalism, I think we're eventually going to have to dismantle the nation state. I think both capitalism and the nation state, I see those as the twin pillars of modern society and its contemporary form. I think both of those two things are institutionally incompatible with an ecologically sustainable society. I don't see a way to have a sustainable capitalist society or a sustainable statist society. I, I have not seen an example of either of those two uh, historically. So I think we need to find ways of reorganizing human societies beyond capitalism and beyond the nation state. I also think we have to find ways of reorganizing human societies that do not involve things like patriarchy and misogyny and transphobia. And I especially think, since I live and work in the United States, I especially think we have to find ways of reorganizing human societies that manage to get beyond forms of racial hierarchy, forms of racialized dispossession and racialized oppression and injustice. To my mind, those are probably the, the major challenges that confront us right now. Any one of those challenges would be a lot, even for a strong, vibrant mass movement to tackle right now. But all of them together seem so formidable. They seem so impossibly huge that it can feel like a kind of moment of despair. It can sound like we're simply asking too much of ourselves. And that's part of why, Brendan, you might have noticed, I keep sentences like that extremely vague in the book. In the book, I don't spell out the details of my social vision. I've done that elsewhere. I do other kinds of political writing where I go into more depth about the direction I think societies might want to consider taking. But to my way of thinking, that's the kind of thing we're going to have to work out in practice. I could tell you right now for, I could go on for three hours about the kind of society that makes the most sense to me, but who the hell cares until we have an opportunity to actually start putting some of those ideas into practice in concrete form. We're not really going to have much of a sense of which ones work well and which ones don't. Now there are places in the world that are trying some of those things out right now. And we can learn from some of those. But I'm, I try to be respectful of what 
an author writing a book in 2021 can and cannot do. I think your thesis, which I would agree with, is that capitalism and the nation state cannot solve these problems and they reproduce them and make them grow and everything like that. So can you like get at why that is and what therefore has to change in order to overcome these crises? When I look back historically at the origins of something like capitalism or the origins of the nation state, those are not the kind of thing that people invented sort of out of whole cloth. They didn't erect them from one day to the next with a clear cut view of this is how this is going to work. This is, this is what we're going to do with these brand new institutions of ours. They are instead the kind of institutions that accumulated over time through a series of decisions that small groups of people made with imperfect knowledge, often trying to achieve one thing, but instead achieving another thing, which is very normal in the course of human affairs. And eventually we end up in a system by the first quarter of the 21st century, we end up in a system where it looks like the nation state is supposed to have a certain set of capacities and a certain set of powers, so much so that a lot of liberals and a lot of progressives, a lot of my friends and family members, look to the nation state as the thing that can tame capitalism, the thing that can keep the excesses of capitalism in check. But in fact, so far, by my lights at least, is manifestly failing to do so. Or look at it the other way around. Some people look to capitalism as the thing that we might be able to reform and turn in a green direction, make an environmental form of capitalism, enlist capitalism in a climate-friendly agenda, etc., etc., etc. I think that is completely impossible. I see no indications of that ever happening. So I think that the historical reasons why those institutions have so radically failed us, that to me is an easier question to answer, probably because I'm a historian. And I can talk about the kind of society I eventually see replacing it, a society that to my mind would have to be based on direct forms of democracy, small-scale forms of technology, what I'm not so good at. I have to confess, is the how to get from here to their part. I have never been good at that. I've never been a particularly strategic thinker. That's just not my gift. So I'm happy to answer questions about it, but it may not be so useful for your listeners, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, well, we've talked about it on the podcast several times, talking about specifically the nature of capitalist competition and how it compels the growth of capital to completely unsustainable uh, levels and the way that the force of that growth and then political imperative that puts on nation states to encourage that growth for the sake of competition between nation states makes it impossible to ever really do anything about the problem that despite all of the promises about emissions caps etc nothing ever really changes because of the nature of this competition. States can't afford to actually 
change the way they produce energy or produce commodities and companies can't afford to do it either because we're all in this global competition for profit and resources and there's just no way out of it in a system of where competition is the way that social relations are organized so until people are under are able to come to grips with that and really not keep believing in these fantasies like they're going to change something through you know like the capitalist states are going to just like have a come to jesus moment and start investing in massive green infrastructure projects and there will be econo- no economic cost to them and the multipolar war- world we're in they won't like fall apart or turn into competition and war over these you know, not, it, it's just until people can realize this is not really a realistic strategy we're going to be stuck with this problem and then we're posed with new problems which are what kind of world we might live in once this climate crisis starts radically changing the world we live in that's a whole nother conversation because could be that it's just too late and we have to figure out like the far right are going to have their responses to these problems and the left really has staked out what their responses are to these problems the far right is going to want to it is probably will develop an eco-fascism that's mainstream right-wing politics because they're going to want to keep climate immigrants uh, from crossing borders and they're going to want to maintain fossil fuel production at the expense of the environment and and I don't know have other ways of dealing with like the way environmental problems affect infrastructure that don't involve like solving the problem you know so there's going to be a whole politics of the right about how to control society and the economies and compete within the context of massive environmental destruction and chaos and i don't think the left really has a plan for how to deal with that the right seems to be even if they're not talking about they seem to be sort of coalescing around the idea that we just need fascism to solve these problems even if it's not explicit I would say yes and no to to Brendan's last comment. One of the things I try to remind others on the left about is that the right in general is just as heterogeneous, just as internally differentiated, and often just as internally divided as the left is. Anyone who spent time on the left for, you know, more than a year or two, certainly anyone who spent a couple of decades on the left knows just how much we are riven by internal debates and divisions, some of them ridiculously petty, and some of them real and genuine and substantive. And the exact same thing is true of the right, including the far right, including the parts that I call the radical right. And that's worth reminding ourselves of. The right is not monolithic. They have their own debates, some of them silly, but some of them very real. So they're hashing stuff out at the moment as well, including on environmental issues where there are some really severe differences of opinion. There's a there's a spectrum over there on those questions in the same way that there's uh, disagreements and debates on the left as well. I can't remember which essay it is, but in one of them, you say, quote, unsurprisingly, many real world responses to the ravages of capitalism do not fall neatly into either the radical or the reactionary camp. And then you give some really striking examples of reactionary ideas finding their ways into modern environmental movements. Can you give some of those examples here? I think they would be really interesting for people. Sure. I I think those are really common. And And I want to point out that they're also, they're not that strange. 
when that happens, at least from a historical point of view, when that occurs, we shouldn't be shocked by it. We shouldn't be terrified or horrified by it. I think we should reflect on it. We should. I'm not saying we always do, but I think that would sort of be the the reasonable response is to say, okay, environmental politics has all along been a confused mixture of left and right impulses. It's never had, like I said an hour ago, it's, it's just never had a clear pattern of political affinities and affiliations. So there's nothing that surprising when we find that once in a while, a body of ideas or beliefs or practices that has some pretty reactionary background wanders its way into the contemporary environmental milieu. In fact, that's probably what you would expect, at least what a historian would expect to happen. So yeah, I I see that happening all the time. I, I see it happening among people that I know and love, among some of my favorite people, and they're not doing it because they have any personal sympathies for the right. Quite the contrary. They're doing it just because these are things that have established themselves in environmental contexts, over the years, and they seem like they're hip and cool and green-ish. And that's just what folks do. That's just been part of our scene for decades now. And they haven't looked into the history. They haven't looked into the background. They haven't, they haven't sort of tried to see what's behind this. So the example that I always bring up, and I feel bad that it's what I always bring up, but it's such a classic one, is biodynamic farming. I don't know how much your listeners might know about that. If your listeners are involved in the organic scene, they'll definitely know about biodynamics. If you're not involved in the organic scene, the, the quick and dirty version is that biodynamic farming is a very important subset of organic farming, a highly unusual form of organic farming, but a really important one. Uh, Started in Germany in the 1920s, spread to the U.S., a big deal in the U.S. organic scene, a very big deal in today's German organic scene. Biodynamic farming is something that I study as a historian. I just finished a great big book about the political history of biodynamic farming in Nazi Germany. hasn't been published yet. It's under review. It'll take forever. It'll probably be a year and a half before that book appears, but I just finished writing it, so it's very much on my mind right now. And the political history of biodynamics during the Nazi period is extraordinarily messy, complicated, and compromised. If I had to summarize it, the way I'd put it is this. Uh, most of the biodynamic movement in Germany, for most of the Nazi period, happily threw in its lot with Nazism when they could. They couldn't after a certain period because anti-organic Nazis cracked down on them. But for a long time, for eight of the 12 years that the Nazis were in power, there was a whole lot of cooperation and collaboration between the biodynamic movement and those parts of the Nazi movement that were happy to go along with them. And that's something that the biodynamic movement today is, with very few exceptions, is in total denial about, and they shouldn't be. If we're going to have these things as part of an environmental movement in the 21st century, as part of an ongoing ecological 
challenge in today's world, we absolutely have to be more aware of the political history of those practices, of the political history of those parts of our movement. I think that is crucial for all of us to be able to face in an honest and informed and critical manner. But do you think that there's something inherently fascist or dangerous about biodynamic farming that people need to be aware no, of or aware of or worry about? There's nothing inherently fascist about it. It's a matter of historical contingency. It's a fancy word that historians use. Because biodynamics appeared in Germany in the mid-1920s when, guess what? Nazism appeared in Germany or started to gain traction in Germany in the mid-1920s for totally contingent reasons. Because they happened to arise in the same place at more or less the same time. And because they shared a number of similar preoccupations, renewal, purity, something that Andrew asked about a little while ago, uh, national renewal, the soil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are various historical reasons why those two movements for a time came together. It was not fated to happen that way. It wasn't predestined. It wasn't necessary, but it did happen. That's what I want. Uh, defenders of biodynamics today to be able to recognize and make sense of. Right. But in addition to certain historical and political roots and so forth that are kind of contingent, uh, I, I mean, I think the bigger problem in what calls itself the left is there are a lot of ideas. There's a baggage of a lot of reactionary anti-capitalist ideas. Let me say that again, because that's kind of shocking to hear nowadays. Reactionary anti-capitalist ideas, they do exist. They've been there forever. Just look at the Communist Manifesto where they get talked about. Associated with romanticism, kind of irrationalist reaction to opposition to capitalism and to modernity. And I think, you know, Ted Kaczynski reflects that. It seems to me that a lot of the problem and the the reason becomes hard to gain recognition on the left about the eco-fascism and so forth, the right-wing environmentalism is a big problem, is a lot of the broader philosophical views that are kind of reactionary, romantic, irrationalist, they've made their way very deeply into the left. I'd like to get your thoughts on on that kind of thing. Can I, can I maybe I give an example of people? Sure. Hopefully this is an example that illustrates what you're saying, Andrew, but I had a conversation a couple of years ago with somebody who was going on about local farming and how local farming is you know, the evils of the large-scale agriculture. And I said, you know, local farms, that's fine, but I I don't know if you can feed the planet with local farms. Like, large-scale farming is just more efficient, just basic, like, returns to scale. You're going to be able to feed more people with a large farm. Um, If you're going to have a lot of people on the planet, you need to have large-scale farming. And the person thought about it for a while, and they said, well, I guess we just shouldn't have so many people on the planet. And I was like, well, I don't know what your political plan is for, but it sounds like you want to exterminate, like, half the world's population. Population. So, yeah, I, mean, I mean that that's that's a kind of a right wing idea, but I'm thinking more of the, the the kind of just general association of technology, modernity, and and all of those things with basic conceptions of 
how society is, how it was, the return to a better past, and, and, and all of those kind of things. I, I think they've made their way rather deeply within the left. And, you know, not everybody necessarily holds to it, but they're, they're certainly tolerated to a great extent. I think Andrew's phrase, reactionary anti-capitalism, is perfect. I think that exactly captures a lot of the issues that we have been talking about in this session. And I completely agree that that's the kind of thing that has been going on since the emergence of critiques of capitalism themselves. There has always been a reactionary version or many reactionary versions of anti-capitalism. They've always been there straight alongside the emancipatory versions of anti-capitalism and the the left versions of anti-capitalism. And that's important for us to recognize. So, Brendan, if you the 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 next time you have a friend who um, mentions something about family farms, and for what it's worth, I'm from Wisconsin. I love family farms. I love family dairy farms. But the next time you have a friend who brings that up, one response that I like to mention is, what do you know about the labor relations on your favorite family farm? Do you know anything about the labor relations? Do you know, is there is there any form of unionization? Do you know anything about, do workers have any representation? Do they have any say in how the farm is run? Do they have any ownership stake? I think when you raise issues like that, it can get people thinking beyond, it can, not necessarily will, but it might be a way into getting people thinking beyond their romanticized images of small is always better, family is always better, mom and pop is always better. That is one of the problems with, as Andrew was pointing out, the encroachment of reactionary forms of anti-capitalism into parts of the left. If we think that Main Street is always better than Wall Street, that mom and pop this is always better than multinational that, that might even sometimes be sort of kind of true. But when we just assume that it must be true because well, because why? That's where we need to get people thinking about what is it with capitalism that we actually oppose? That competitive dynamic that you were mentioning earlier, that can break down in several different ways. There are right-wing versions of anti-capitalism that also point to the competitive dynamic of capitalism as something that they don't like, but the reason they don't like it is really different from left critiques of capitalism. Right-wing critiques of capitalism say, well, the problem with capitalism is it undermines the man's authority in the household, his authority over the woman and over the children, et cetera, et cetera. Or sometimes they say the problem with capitalism is it undermines white people's authority within society. And it raises the horrifying specter that communities of color might gain parity with white people, et cetera, et cetera. Or capitalism leads to cosmopolitanism, which from a far right-wing point of view is something terrible that should never be allowed to happen, etc., etc., etc. There are possible ways of looking at capitalism from a far right point of view, negative views of capitalism from a far right point of view that say capitalism is bad for all these reasons that point in exactly the opposite direction from left-wing and emancipatory critiques of 
capitalism. That is the sort of thing that I think we need to get a lot of activists thinking more deeply about, thinking more thoroughly and more critically about. Within that uh, ecological movements, you've put out your ideas, you've critiqued reactionary uh, ideas. Within the ecological movements, what, what kind of reactions have you been receiving? What, who are the kinds of people who like what you're saying or hostile to what you're saying? I would say the reactions have been very varied. They've been all over the map. There have been some very generous reactions where people who don't agree with my arguments have gone to the trouble of offering thoughtful and engaged critiques. And that's the sort of thing that authors absolutely love. Your, your listeners should know that. When, when a reader goes to the trouble of critiquing your work of dismantling point by point an argument that you've put forward, that's a real sign of respect. You might think that it's somehow disrespectful. It is not. It's an enormous sign of respect. So I have been deeply gratified to see people who disagree with the arguments that I have put forward, instead of just dismissing the arguments, going to the trouble of telling me either personally or emailing me or you know, meeting me in public, or even better, in the form of a review, a critical review. That's been wonderful to see. Some of the responses have been wholly positive. People saying, I've never seen these ideas before. I've never heard about this. This has completely changed my mind. I'm now going to have to go back and re-examine my own, et cetera, et cetera. I love seeing that. I don't, you know, I don't know who my readers are, obviously, so I have no idea what effect it's going to have in any given uh, any given case. And I'm always delighted to see when I've when I've managed to provoke critical reflection on the part of people who care about these issues. And then, of course, there are the reactions of people that I have managed to make very, very mad. And that's not my intention, although anyone who, Brendan, I know you've, you've, you've read the essays in the book, you, you can see from the way I write, I am happy to make people mad. <laughs> I, I write in a way that is willing to make some readers mad, but that's not why I write my essays. And when people do get mad at my essays, I think it's a missed opportunity. Rather than getting mad, what I want to see people do is write your own essay. Write an essay that encapsulates what made you mad about what I wrote. It doesn't even have to be a response to me. It doesn't even have to mention me, but write your own essay that puts your own counter arguments out there and that continues a kind of ongoing conversation that allows other people to see a different side of the issue, a different side of the story. So some of the less perceptive responses, uh, to put it that way, have come especially from people who I would think of as liberals and progressives, who in my view just completely misunderstood what is at stake with far-right versions of ecology. Their worry, as far as I've been able to make sense of, their worry was that left critics of far-right ecology are going to somehow doom the environmental movement as a whole by critiquing its far-right variants. And I have to say that doesn't make the slightest sense at all. If we somehow all kept silent about it, it would not make these things go away. The Christchurch perpetrator and the El Paso per perpetrator and the Buffalo perpetrator, they're still there. What we need are people on the left who are willing to take the time to dig into the longer term history 
and the philosophical background, if you will, and take that stuff seriously and try to make some sense of it. So I would like to see more people out there spend some of their attention on some of those really crucial issues. Uh, Peter Stoudemire, thank you so much for the conversation today. I think it's been great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, thanks for coming on. It's been a very good discussion. So, and the book is Ecology Contested. That's the most recent one. And what's the name of the new book that you're hoping to get out some point? Soon? The working title right now, which will probably change, is The Politics of Nature in Nazi Germany, Environmental Ideals and the Myth of Blood and Soil. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.